the passage that we'll be reading this morning is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open there to Jeremiah 31 as we continue our sermon series in the history of redemption. Uh, this is our 11th week in the history of redemption. And uh, as we work our way through, we're seeing a story that God is playing out, a story that is the gospel story. We're tracing God's revelation of his purpose to redeem a people for himself out from among a rebellious creation. This is the, the circumstance and the overarching narrative of this history that we see in the scriptures. Right at the beginning, a pattern emerges in the scriptures. Uh, a pattern emerges in which God, first of all, acts unilaterally in generosity and goodness. You hear that, right? You know that that's what creation is. God's unilateral act of generous goodness. But his people, his new creation, they reject the way of the Lord and they seek the pleasures of creation apart from the real revealed way of the creator. So we have a circumstance of the unilateral generosity of God in creation and the rebellion of his creation against his goodness. This pattern is a pattern that we might call the good news and the bad news, right? It's a, it's a pattern that makes us ask the question, is that the end of the story? Is, I mean, is that the pattern that's going to be on the repeat? And the act, answer is really, yeah, that is the pattern that's on repeat. God works in rescuing generosity and kindness and revelation. And the response of the people over and over again is the bad news, which is rebellion from Adam and Eve, though, Right there in the middle of their rebellion, immediately after the fall, God's word to Noah, God's word to Abraham, and God's word to Moses, there has been another word. We have a good word, we have bad news, and then we have a good news again, a promise and a hope, a future redemption. So what we have is, you might say, not only blessing and then curse, we have blessing and curse and redemption. The pattern is not good news and then bad news. The pattern is good news, bad news, great news. The, the drama is not a tragedy, it turns out. The drama is actually a history of redemption. Heavenly Father, I pray that today as we give attention to your word, in this particular place, in this moment, in the middle of the scriptures. 
that you would reveal to us by your word your intentions, your purpose in history. And Lord, that we would recognize that this isn't just an interesting study. This is your purpose. If it's in history, it's in this moment. Your purpose to redeem. And so I pray that you would do your redemptive work right here. Your miraculous, generous, good news word right here in our midst today. Grant us the faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, begin at verse 31, and you can read it there. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And, and right away, we have the Lord calling our attention to something. And what he's going to call our attention to is a series of promises. If we had all the time in the world, we would just look at each one of, what I think are really seven promises in this passage. Instead, we're going to sort of walk our way through it in a more general fashion. But this morning, we have the first promise is, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new covenant. So let's consider this word, a covenant. It's not a word that's in our, our regular speech. It's not a word that you hear in, in, uh, on television or in your regular conversation at a, a coffee shop. I would say two things about covenant that might help us out this morning. First of all, is by making a covenant, God has bound himself to a particular relationship with a people. Did you hear that? God bound himself? I mean, we're using the word God, the unbounded one, and then when you were using the word that God is bound. Now, now, there's nothing bound about God by nature or divinity. God is not bound. That, it's part of what it means to be, you know, God. Who would bind God? The Lord may only draw a boundary around his own own actions and his own relationships by his own sovereign will. That's why the, the story begins and ends with the unilateral generous goodness of God. This is what he's actually done. He's made for himself a relationship with a people and then bound himself to act in a particular way within that relationship. He has fashioned a redemptive relationship, and then he has said, and I will be this way toward you in that relationship. Consider marriage. The most clear example of a covenant in human relationships, it's, it creates a new relationship. Like there didn't used to be a relationship. Some people get together, they dress up, they both look really beautiful, at least one of them does. And then on that day, they say some words, and boom, you have this new thing that didn't exist the day before. You have a relationship. It creates a new relationship out of what was previously two unbound persons. Some would say, I don't want to get married. I don't want to be bound. Well, I mean, you have a point. You have a point. When you get married, you are now bound. You, you, have, you have left behind of your own covenant volition by your own will certain rights and privileges of not being in that relationship and not being particular ways within that relationship. And yet God seems to do that, so it must not be too bad. It must not be something that we ought to cast out of mind. But now, 
Having entered into the relationship, the two, that is the man and the woman, are bound within a, re- within a relationship, this new relationship that didn't previously exist. They are now bound to act in a particular way now as husband and wife. In marriage, this relationship is between two equal persons, two humans. Yes, a man. Yes, a woman. But two equal persons. And so the relationship must be entered into freely, by both persons. That's why at the beginning of the ceremony, the pastor, I've done this a number of times, you know that every moment in the ceremony isn't just a ceremonial moment. It's a moment thick with meaning. That's why you can't skip any of the elements. At the beginning of the ceremony, the pastor presiding over the formation of the covenant relationship, I will ask the man and the woman, what is your intention here? I'm asking that because they're about to bind themselves. And I need to know, like, is that what you're intending to do here? I don't want you to do something you don't intend to do because once it's done, it's done. There's, that's why both of the parties make a vow. They both present symbols of that vow and a covenant into which God enters, apart from the covenant that he makes with himself in the Trinity. And we won't talk about that this morning. God is always the greater party. It's not God entering into a relationship with another party equal with himself. He has the right and the privilege to make covenant, to establish relationship on the one hand, and to fashion the terms of the relationship on the other hand of his own unilateral will. He is the greater party. That's what the Lord does in making a covenant with his people. It's a covenant. Yes. It fashions a new relationship. It defines terms for that relationship. But all of that is according to the Lord's design alone. The covenant is still between two parties, the Lord and the people, but it's the Lord that designs the terms of the covenant. For instance, the Lord will act in generous, redeeming grace, and the people will obey. That's the covenant of the law. The Lord establishes the covenant, and then the people, they say, yes, we agree to the terms. But they didn't create the terms. They didn't fashion the terms. They say, yes, we believe the terms are good. Well, that's the first aspect. There's a binding. And the second is the reality of the relationship. When, when you hear the word covenant, I want you to think the word relationship. I think that when we hear the word covenant, we immediately think law. We think binding, because it is binding. But what is being bound? A relationship. Friends, if you are here and you are married, and the first thing that you think about your covenant is law. (laughs) I'm available. You can make a meeting with me. We can talk, you know? No, the first thing that we should consider when we hear the word covenant is relationship. A relationship entails at least two things, though. The first is a relational disposition. We understand this about relationships. In the case of both marriage and the covenant that the Lord makes with his people, the disposition is love. This is why marriage is given as a sign of that prior reality of God's love for his church. The the disposition of a relationship is love. Second, every covenant has parameters or duties or expectations that are to be held in the relationship of love. We've already seen how the covenant may involve law, 
but we'll also see how it becomes the basis and expectation of faithfulness. This love and this mercy is why the scriptures so often speak of the Lord as the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. You know that when you see that phrase over and over again throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, it's referring to the covenant-keeping God. That's what it's referring to, the God who relates to his people with steadfast love and mercy. Again, a covenant establishes a foundation and the terms of a relationship. A covenant is first and foremost a relationship between persons. And in the case of God's covenant with man, it defines the relationship between creation and creator. Are you with me? Do you have an image in your mind of of covenant? It's really, it's a beautiful, powerful thing. God's covenant, both old and new, establishes a particular relationship because the Lord is faithful and the Lord does not change. Whether it's the old or new covenant, he is bound by the terms of his covenant. He doesn't just come along and say, ah, that old one didn't really work. Let me make a new one, okay? No, he doesn't change. He interacts with his people according to his own design. Because the terms of the covenant are clearly defined and they define the nature of the relationship, if we are to understand the nature of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, which I hope you want to know. Like, what is the nature of his, uh, of his duties in this love relationship? What we have to do is not simply go into introspection. Well, how would I love? Do you really want that to be the definition of God's love for you? We don't look at sociological conventions and studies. We don't say, well, how do people love. We don't go to our imagination. How would I make, have God make a covenant with us? No. The way that we know the nature of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, the nature of his, what is, he is bound to by his love, is we remember and examine closely the terms of God's covenant that he has established. What I'm saying is this. God is not defined by your imagination nor the culture's imagination about how he should be. God has not bound himself to our imaginations. God has bound himself to his own revelation of his own unilateral covenant. So let's consider this new and old covenant, because it says here, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let me suggest that the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is a further revelation of God's purpose of redemption way back in Deuteronomy 30. Now, I know I'm going to lose some of you right here because you're like, Deuteronomy 30, that's interesting. We should go read it. We don't have time. Let me say this. Some of you were here when when we walked through that just maybe five weeks ago or so. You'll remember Deuteronomy 30 was God's further revelation of his intentions after he revealed the covenant of blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience, after he reveals that sort of law covenant, he then says, and when you fail to do these things, I will. He's giving a little hint of something. He's not full on making a covenant. He's certainly not ratifying the covenant, but he's telling us something that he's doing, even though he hasn't told you all about it yet. I would argue that Jeremiah 31 is the covenant basis upon which God will execute neither blessing nor curse, but rather grace. Jeremiah 31 is God's revelation of his purpose of redemption for a people who are not walking in blessing, but instead walking in the curse of disobedience. And he looks and he sees and he knows 
that if he executes his old covenant, and he will, because he doesn't change, the people are bound to receive curse. But he has a purpose to redeem. So that's what Jeremiah 31 is, which makes us ask the question, does that make this a new covenant or not? And I would say, yes, it is a new covenant, but it is not a covenant that comes out of the blue. It's not a covenant that the people are like, whoa, God is steadfast and kind and gracious. Didn't see that coming. No, if they've been reading the scriptures, as he's revealing his law, he's been speaking words of grace the whole time and every time. The Lord's been revealing the need for this covenant and his intention to make a new covenant for ages. What we have here is another layer in Jeremiah 31 being peeled off of the mystery of redemption. And we're seeing, oh, it's being revealed. It's gonna, it's gonna involve things like new hearts. It's gonna involve people like no longer the need for evangelism. They'll simply know their God. And we're going to see a people whose sins are deeply, truly, and finally forgiven. And Jesus himself will peel off the final layer. And what do we find at the center and the core wrapped up inside of this generosity that the Lord has been revealing at each time and each place in covenant history? We find the cross of atonement at its center. Atonement is at the center of the new covenant of redemption, the new covenant of grace. So let me just ask this question. Is the covenant, is the new covenant conditional or unconditional? The old covenant, the covenant of the law, was a conditional covenant. Very clearly, very very obviously conditional. Blessing or curse? Blessing or curse? Obedience or disobedience? But because we hear news of evidence of God's patience and love throughout the whole of history, mankind sort of develops this sense of, well, blessing or curse, it's been real clear, but God keeps talking about love, so maybe it's just blessing no matter what. And we, we sort of develop that sort of internal disposition. He's been real clear in his covenant, but ah, whatever. He keeps talking about how he's real good and stuff, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love. But that, that's, a, that's an unconditional covenant. But God's con- covenant, his old covenant, is conditional. So the, old, the covenant condition is legalistic. It, it's not unconditioned and liberal. It is conditional and legal. It's the, the law covenant. Surely the old covenant is conditional, blessing or curse, obedience or disobedience, but all the while there's a thread of hope. There's a thread of redemption that runs throughout the whole story so that the people of faith throughout history, even who only have the old covenant in all of its crystal clarity, even that people of faith cry out to the Lord for grace even when they find themselves on the cursed end of the disobedience spectrum. Let's be real clear the disobedience spectrum is, is really short. <laughs> there's perfect obedience, and then there's all the rest of the spectrum. And the people of faith the whole time who know that according to the covenant of the law, curse, they still cry out, God, forgive. You see, the faithful throughout history have known that the covenant of God leaves no room for unconditional relationship. 
But by some mystery, God still holds out a hope of redemption. The mystery isn't revealed, but they know the nature of this God, even though they know the reality of his righteousness. Can you feel the tension in the room? Do you feel like there's something unanswered right now? I remember the first time I heard the word contra-conditional. I remember the first word, time I heard the word against all conditions. That's what redemption is. You could have had blessing according to the relationship established by the law, and you could have had it by condition. God promised it. God was obligated of his own free sovereign action. God obligated himself to bless perfect obedience. But because of your disobedience, you stand condemned all the rest of the spectrum, which is everybody in the room. And yet, you have the real hope of redemption according to the covenant of grace. The new covenant is unlike the covenant of blessing and curse, the covenant of obedience and disobedience, a legal and conditional covenant. The new covenant is a covenant that solidifies a relationship of redemption. It's a relationship in which the disobedient are blessed because the gracious and atoning work, not of the disobedient, but of God himself, the offended party in the relationship. That's the covenant. That's the promise. And that is what God has obligated himself to. How God would do this and yet remain faithful to the terms of the old covenant remains a mystery long veiled, even right here in Jeremiah 31. As he's saying, I will make a new covenant, a covenant by which your sins will be actually fully, finally forgiven. The people of faith yet had confidence in God's grace. And now that confidence is fully revealed. We don't just believe in, in the character of God's promise. He said he'd work out a way to keep the old covenant and yet fulfill redemption. We have revelation of Jesus Christ. I would go to 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. I encourage you, write some of these down in the margin in Jeremiah 31 so you can go to the way Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, conditional covenant, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter, conditional legal covenant, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. By the law and the failure of their flesh, the people are condemned. And by the new covenant of redemption in the gift of the Spirit, the people are blessed. Now, if we look at the history of the Old Testament, faithful, the temple, its sacrifices have been a means by which the faithful, not the obedient, everyone's disobedient, but, but the people of faith held on to the hope that the Lord would yet redeem, would yet reveal a way, sort of a ram in a thicket for Isaac, who was going to die. God will provide. And so they went to the temple according to the, his instruction, and they believed God will provide. The new covenant promise in Jeremiah is fully revealed and, and accomplished in Jesus Christ in his gospel And it's truly a new covenant. 
But did God abolish the old covenant? No, the, the new covenant doesn't ignore the old covenant. God doesn't change. The covenant of grace by which the Lord secures the redemption promise of the new covenant has been slowly revealed at each moment in history, even present as the terms of the old covenant were being established. The terms of the old covenant show that the Lord is holy and righteous. You know, I've asked many times, why didn't we just go right to the gospel? Like Adam and Eve, sin, God comes to him and says, hey, you deserve death, but love you, love you, forgiveness, grace, Jesus revealed, right? Well, it's because we have to understand something that the old covenant had to reveal to us. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is just because the Lord does not set aside the conditionality of the terms to accomplish redemption. He shows himself to remain just and faithful. But as we'll see in just a moment, having fulfilled the terms of the old covenant through the person and work of Jesus, who is the perfectly righteous one who secures blessing. He gets blessing according to the old covenant at all times and in all moments, perfectly fulfilling the law. God also accomplishes the unilateral promises of the new covenant, a covenant that is conditioned not upon the works of the law, but upon faith in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ alone. And this is what God is doing. Look at verse 33 with me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The old covenant was written on stone. The tablets of the law, the 10 commandments. It was written as an external command to be received and obeyed. Blessing or curse. The new covenant is written on the heart so that the person himself is actually transformed, not in conformity to an external standard, but in keeping with the work of the Spirit of God as is being written on the human soul. The Apostle Paul speaks of the evidence of God's grace, of his ministry as a letter as a letter in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. That's the evidence that the new covenant is being written by the spirit of God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's how, that's how the apostle Paul knew that what was at work was redemption because it was being a fulfillment of this very passage. So what does a covenant written on a human heart look like? I can envision like chiseling on stone, right? I don't do that every week, but I can imagine it. But I've certainly never seen a covenant written on a heart before. What's that look like? God's work in the new covenant promise is both a desire and ability to keep his law. Uh-oh, uh-oh. So you mean the new covenant's law still? No, 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 listen. Remember, I've said the whole time that the law of God is a legal expression of God's good way. The law itself isn't God's good way in and of itself, as though, as though God's good way is an external standard that could be written on stone. No, God's good way is God's good way. It's his perfect holiness and his design for humanity and all of creation. 
The law is not the way itself, but the legal expression of the good way. It's the mind of God for the purpose of man gathered into a code of commandments. And it was a faithful representation of God's perfect way. What do the people get in the new covenant? They don't get a legal code that is faithful to the way of God. They get the way itself. They get the way itself, the purpose itself, the mind itself, the desire itself of God written on their hearts and on their will. Friends, that's a good covenant. What's the result? He says, I will be their God. That's the result. And they shall be my people. I want you to hear this. It's a love song. I am yours and you are mine. Of God's sovereign, generous, grace-filled, unilateral will. This is the first and the most beautiful result but it accomplishes something else that makes that result possible and righteous and good. It's this, their sins will be forgiven so that they will be remembered no more. Verse 34, I will at the end of the verse forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I call that final forgiveness. There's a sort of forgiveness that genuinely forgives, but it genuinely forgives a specific instance or occasion of a broken commandment. This sort of forgiveness is what is envisioned in the sacrificial system with all its specific commands and sacrifices and purifications for all manner of particular circumstances of sin. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Friends, if you want to read an explanation of the nature of the covenants, just read Hebrews. It's literally a sermon that's better than this one on God's covenant with his people. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has put a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of its realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the way of the sacrifices was a reminder of God's specific, but it doesn't accomplish final forgiveness. The worship system of the old covenant was never supposed to actually accomplish redemption in and of themselves. They're always to point the people to the hope that they will find in God in his new covenant of grace. Fully revealed, there is a sort of forgiveness you see, that forbears with, for, with specific instances of sin. And there is, then there is final and complete forgiveness, a sort of forgiveness that's perfect and complete. The sort of forgiveness that's envisioned is a total and cleansing of all iniquity. The sort of for, forgiveness that's envisioned is complete. It's a sort of forgiveness that's imaged in the Day of Atonement. And we spent time on that just a few weeks ago. And yet, even the Day of Atonement was repeated year after year. What's revealed here is a final redemption in which sin is remembered no more. What's revealed here is a final redemption in which sin is done for. 
It's not a momentary or circumstantial removal. It's total and comprehensive, once for all. And here's how Hebrews continues it. Consequently, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offers you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scrolls of the book. Covenant. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the law of the covenant, the covenant law, to establish the second, a covenant of grace. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And finally, all of creation, getting these hints, getting these layers peeled away, see the center, which is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is twofold. It's the final and complete removal of the stain of sin, accomplishing atonement once for all, for all who believe, for all whose trust is in that redemptive hope. And secondly, it grants the gift of genuine transformation in the deepest parts of the human soul. The actual divine work of the Spirit of God, working his divine desire, his divine purpose in the human heart. And so, in the new covenant, we are, we are right to give so much attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're right to give attention to what all is revealed in the New Testament. We are right to do so. And as we give attention to the, the whole history of redemption, what we ought to see is the new covenant isn't actually new. It didn't come on to the scene when Jesus began his preaching ministry or when the apostles began to unpack the work of Christ. The Lord doesn't change. This is how he is related to his people who are called by his name in every age. What I'm saying is this. God has written his law on the hearts of his redeemed and atoned for their iniquity from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Jeremiah to Mary to Peter to Paul and to every single believer to this day. That is God's covenant of grace. This is why when we see faith in each one of these, in the history of redemption, as we're walking our way, we see faith, not just law, not just a labor and obedience, but we see faith because it's the evidence that God's grace has been written on the heart. Evidence of God's work by his spirit, crediting to each one righteousness in every age according to his covenant of grace. What we have promised in Jeremiah, promised, we have secured and accomplished in Jesus Christ. The saints of old trusted in a provision yet to be revealed, but they've trusted in the character and nature of the God who promised it. But the saints in this present age trust in a provision that has been revealed. And we know his name. His name is Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ and his gospel. The question for you is, do you believe? The question for your heart 
Is this your trust, your hope? Or do you run like the Galatians back and try and do the old covenant thing? Are you still trying to justify yourself? Are you hiding in the shame because you know you can't justify yourself? Friends, believe the new covenant hope. Put your whole faith and your whole confidence, not in you, whether in your obedience or your disobedience, your, your hope for blessing or your knowledge that you're cursed. Cling and cry out to the Lord, not by his legal conditions, by his, but by his perfect fulfillment of the law and accomplishment and promise of grace. Will you secure your own blessing? How's that going for you? Or will you trust in the covenant of his grace? Listen, it is about relationship. Honestly, I'm kind of tired of hearing it's all about relationship with Jesus because it's such a mushy, meaningless relationship that is being talked about so very often. Oh, no, it is about relationship with Jesus. And we got parameters and we have confidence and we have work and we have history. We have a covenant that is thick and full that you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you this morning? In a moment, we'll take communion. And these are Jesus's words. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm really thankful for this ring. It means a lot to me. It it, it speaks to me of promises and hope and relationship that I have in my marriage. But in a in a cup, it speaks to me of a blood that was shed to bring me into a relationship that I had absolutely lost before the holy God. This is the love of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness for you. I call you this morning, put your faith there. Heavenly Father, we worship you. You are worthy of all praise. You are the grace one. We thank you for your work of grace in the midst of the congregation this morning and in the midst of our particular hearts. We ask that all would believe, place their faith in you, trust in you, and know the sweetness of this relationship with Jesus and all the fullness of the covenant that we have just scratched the surface of remembering this morning. Help us to know and understand and remember and recount the vow and see the vow is all yours. Thank you for loving us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus's good name, that name of our Redeemer. We pray, amen.